When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast, we reveal the man who could replace Maurizio Sarri at Chelsea come the end of the season. Timo Werner and Nicolas Pepe are two of Europe's top talents, but where will they end up as Premier League scouts keep a keen eye on their progress? And Kevin De Bruyne and Mo Salah hit form at the right time as a title race goes right to the wire, but who will prove decisive in this incredible battle? Okay, well, Maurizio Sarri has got Chelsea in the Champions League places at the moment, but it hasn't stopped speculation regarding his future. And in fact, Duncan has a solid story about who might replace him as Chelsea manager at the end of the season. Duncan? Yeah, look, as we've been reporting in the transfer window for a long time now, Chelsea have been considering their options with Maurizio Sarri. Um, Unpopular as the fans, unpopular as the players, showed himself to be ridiculously dogmatic in his in his tactical approach. Um, not bought players well. The players that he's been allowed to sign um, haven't uh, improved the team. In fact, you could argue they made them worse. If, uh, in the in the specific case of Jorginho. Um, so obviously, Chelsea have to look at their options for next season. Um, they've been having conversations with uh, various agents and um, potential replacements. And a new name has emerged and is being considered by the club, um, and that is Javi Gracia, um, the Watford manager, um, been uh, justifiably praised for um, what he's done since taking over as Watford uh, coach last season, um, led them to the FA Cup final, very popular with the players, popular with his employees. And I think this is a, a big factor here because one of the things that uh, is attractive to Chelsea about Gracia is his character. Um, he is completely uncontroversial, um, very calm in press conferences, popular with the press, but doesn't um, court any issues. And that is something which Chelsea as a football club have always uh, valued. Um, they don't like managers who are outspoken. They don't like managers who question their authority, which has been um, obviously a running uh, story uh, because there is always conflict between uh, managers and uh, Chelsea's ownership over recruitment um, and how the team should be directed. And, and, and that's the second aspect which is intriguing um, about Gracia is he is not a manager who demands things in the transfer market. 
he's not a manager who puts pressure on his club to sign particular players. He's happy to work with what the club gives him, which is one of the reasons he's been such a good fit to Watford, which, as we know, is a, a club owned by the Pozo family um, with the idea of, of leveraging their uh, superb uh, international scouting and recruitment network and bringing players onto the into the shop window in the Premier League and hopefully selling them on um, to uh, better funded clubs um, and allowing the project to carry on as a, as a profitable exercise for them. Interestingly, um, I'm told that they have the same view of Gracia as they have of one of those signings. Um, they gave Gracia a new contract in November. Um, he has the longest contract in the Premier League. It runs till 2023 and they have an option for a further uh, three years. Their idea um, in giving him such a long contract was they have a, a managerial talent there who um, bigger clubs could be attracted to, um, given the way he's he had been performing for them at the time and given the way he's continued to perform. Therefore, if you have such a long contract, you're in a uh, position to negotiate a big severance payment, um, compensation payment from any club who wants to hire him. So, you know, the, in, in one sense, you'd think uh, Gracia um, to Chelsea would be a strange move because he's doing so well at Watford. Um, and Chelsea, as we so often discuss in this podcast, is something of a nightmare of a club um, and one that's uh, caused every person who's been asked to manage it problems. Um, but um, there's also the sense from uh, from Gracia's side that uh, perhaps he's done as much as it's possible to achieve at Watford. This season he could end up finishing seventh. That's essentially the high watermark, I think, realistic high watermark for a Watford squad, which is um, significantly underfunded compared to um, the, the top six in the division and and several other clubs who they're battling with for that seventh place, such as Leicester, Wolves and Everton. And he's got them to an FA Cup final with a chance of, of winning the FA Cup. So um, his, uh, his status is justifiably high at the moment. And I think this interest from Chelsea is something um, we should pay attention to because it takes a lot of boxes for Chelsea as a club in, in, the, the, in the sense of the type of manager Gracia is and his abilities and his proven ability in the Premier League. And you know, as we've discussed before in the podcast, um, Chelsea's status as a club, the, the condition they're in as a football club is such that it's probably going to be harder for them to attract a really top-level manager than it's ever been before. Um, I think guys like Massimiliano Allegri, who um, is considering his future at Juventus and would like to manage in England, he will look at a club like Chelsea and say, well, actually, why do I want to, to leave Juventus and go to Chelsea? If I go to England, I want to be going, at a club, going to a club which can win things, which is in the Champions League. Um, which has the ability to recruit properly. And, and Chelsea really aren't that anymore. So um, we've, we've had Nuno Espirito Santo um, uh, set up as a candidate uh, for Chelsea, and, and that makes sense um, from Chelsea's perspective. I think Gracia makes sense. Um, and I think, Ian, um, you can tell us where you've got, you're in a better position to tell us where they are on on. The, one of the other alternatives, I think the fans' favourite, Frank Lampard. 
Yeah, I think Lampard's been considered. Um, and he's the obvious choice in terms of you know, getting the fans back on side who've been malcontent um, since uh, Conte's second season and, and then sacking. And Sarri has not managed to win them over. Um, obviously, Derby in a state of flux because their chairman and owner, Mel Morris, has offered to sell the club for an almost stake of a pound uh, in order to try and recoup some of the £93 million pounds he's loaned the club during his time in charge. And that, of course, would put Frank Lampard's future um, into the mix with regards to who comes in and do they want him, do they not? And obviously, with Derby outside the playoff positions right now as well, um, any incoming owner stroke chairman <coughs> could justifiably say, well, you've not achieved what we that the club has asked you to achieve. And if Frank's got um, an option to go to Chelsea, it'd be very difficult to turn down. Although, at this stage in time, you know, personally, I would think that would be bad for his career because he doesn't have, well, he has only one year's actual managerial experience um, under his belt and taking on a job like Chelsea, as you mentioned, Duncan, with the chaos there, um, would be a big gamble for him regarding his future career. Um, and given uh, that he is only 40 years old, I'm sure he wants that to last a bit longer than where he is right now. Um, I think what's interesting with regards to the an, an, analysing this situation um, is, in terms of Gracia, that is, um, and also even Nuno as well, when you are um, the owner of a large business who is looking for an exit strategy, i.e. to sell that business, which I think it's fair to say Roman Brown, which is clearly open to listening for, to offers, for Chelsea Football Club, one of the things you don't do is appoint someone in the pivotal role of management in that company, in this case, in the football club, who's going to be difficult to evict. And also someone who's going to be controversial in the way he manages um, as well. So what you really want, if you're trying to sell, is a safe pair of hands, someone who is diplomatic in public and effectively mild in private, who won't try and interfere with what's going on regarding the administration of the club, with someone who um, has a good enough track record to be considered credible for the job, but at the same time, easy to remove, or relatively easy to remove for an incoming new owner. And I think both Nuno and Gracia fit that bill. They will do a good enough job. They will do a steady job. Um, they won't interfere in terms of transfer policy, etc., etc., and then when the day comes when all of a sudden it's announced that Chelsea have been sold to this consortium or that particular Middle Eastern um, billionaire, then they have to make their own case for them being kept on. And um, unlike you know a superstar elite coach, uh, <clears throat> they will not cause any problems, there won't be any issues, and of course it will be easier for uh, to sell the club with someone like Garcia or Nuno in charge, and it would be if it was someone like Mourinho or Guardiola, uh, where you immediately have an issue regarding their performance and their payoff, should you not want them to be there anymore. So this makes perfect sense to me with regards to where Chelsea are right now in terms of ownership and um, their ownership status uh, being transferred to someone else. But it also makes sense on the football side, because as Duncan rightly points out, Johnny, um, these guys are doing very good jobs and, and achieving probably punching way above their weight uh, in the Premier League uh, and in Watford's case, the FA Cup as well. Um, and so therefore can be considered credible uh, new coaches for Chelsea. Well, we've talked about what's in the future for Chelsea, but what's in the future for Maurizio Sarri? I mean, objectively, you look at where they are on the table, 
there has been tumult behind the scenes, but at the moment, it's not been too bad, has it? It's not been too good. Um, I think their position in the table, which realistically, they're fifth or, or sixth because they've played a game more than Manchester United uh, and two games more than Arsenal. Uh, realistically, that position is is based on um, the fortunate start to the season they had. You know, they went on that long unbeaten run at the beginning of the season um, when they had quite a few breaks going their way in, in a, a number of matches. And as soon as the rest of the Premier League had worked out that um, Sarri used the same tactics and the same players in every single match, and uh, and fortunately for them, wasn't wasn't it was so dogmatic. He wasn't prepared to change them while they while they'd uh, set out specific ta- tactics to nullify them. Uh, then they started going uh, down the table again. Um, you know, we were talking about them as as uh, title contenders. Remember at the start of the season, uh, and now we're we're wondering whether they make it into the Champions League, off the league place, or they manage to win the Europa League. And I think that's the. I, th- I think that's the last kind of um, uh, lifeline for Sari. Uh, if he was to win the Europa League, he would have a bit of major silverware to show, the first silverware of his career and place in the Champions League um, for the club off the back of it. And that could, if Marina Granovskaya wanted to say, uh, I want to retain this manager, um, who was her appointment? So that there is an investment in Sari on her side. Um, then she would have a justification for doing so off the Champions League qualification Europa League victory. However, the interesting side to this is I have been um, informed by a couple of sources that Sarri is not against being sacked by Chelsea. Um, He's not enjoying his time in London. He's not enjoying working at the club. He finds um, the, the distance between him and the ownership immense and uh, has no, he feels, no proper say in the transfer market. Um, And his argument, of course, is that the way he plays football is fine. It's merely an issue with personnel. If he had better personnel, the results would be better. Um, To the point where he would be happy um, to lose his job. Uh, He has an offer from Roma, uh, Franco Baldini, who is uh, a major figure uh, in the um, the strategy of Roma and a close advisor to the owner, has talked with Sari and wants him to come back uh, to Italy and be the next coach of the club. Um, obviously, they've tried to get uh, Jose Mourinho, as we've uh, as we reported last week, um, but Mourinho has turned him down. Sari, they feel, is a strong option, um, not least because Sari has encouraged them in that interest. So if you look at it from Sari's perspective, um, the ideal way to go back to Italy would be on the back of a pay, a large significant payoff from Chelsea. Um, which is not to say that uh, he is, uh, deli- is going to deliberately uh, try and underperform to the end of the season. I don't think that's the case at all. He's a proud man. He wants to um, demonstrate that he can win, win silverware. Um, with the club, but what I am I'm told by more than uh, one person is that he will not resist if Chelsea decide to dismiss him and would quite happily um, collect his uh, severance check and then take a one of the the bigger jobs in Syria and re- return 
to his home country and uh, to coaching there again. Well, we're going to have a look now at two of the hottest young talents in European football in Timo Werner and Nicolas Pepe. Starting with Werner, he has refused to sign a contract at Leipzig and uh, is looking to run it down so he can sign on a free at the end of next season. But will he get that far or will a big club come and snap him up in this summer, Ian? Uh, Yeah, this is a significant um, news for... Liverpool, and also for Real Madrid, who have expressed an interest, uh, uh, a concrete interest in Leipzig, uh, to Leipzig for Timo Werner. Um, the club's um, chief operating officer, Oliver Mintzlaff, uh, has just confirmed um, in the last uh, 24, 36 hours that um, negotiations with Werner's representatives to extend the contract, which has one year left to run this summer, have com- has completely broken down. Uh, this is a guy who, since he signed from VFB Stuttgart in 2016, has scored 60 goals in only 108 appearances. So he's got a very good goals-to-games ratio. 23 years old, German international, as we know, has been interested in Liverpool for a long time. Now, as we all know in the uh, Transfer Window podcast, and our, our uh, very um, educated listeners know this as well, when a player refuses to sign a new contract, uh, it's usually because he's already got an agreement in place somewhere else. My information is that Liverpool are very close to agreeing personal terms with Werner. Obviously, they have been lacking a natural number nine uh, out-and-out striker um, for some time. Um, uh, Divock Origi has not made any impression. Daddy Sturridge has obviously had his injury problems and has failed to make an impression when he's came on this season. So adding um, <clears throat> a, a proper number nine to their already very potent attacking force is something which... Um, Jurgen Klopp has been very, very keen to do. Um, should they win or not win the title this season, I think that's something which they will go ahead and uh, and recruit anyway. Uh, Klopp has already kind of intimated they won't be making many signings, but Werner will certainly be a significant one. But the fact is, contract situation is such uh, that one with one year left, RB Leipzig would be expecting the region of at least €80 million Euros for a player who had more, maybe two, three years on his contract, than that, but I think um, Liverpool, if indeed uh, they have either agreed or gotten close to agreeing personal terms with RB Leipzig, will probably be looking at paying less than 50 million euros for Werner. And for a player of 23 years old and with his proven ability, that would be a real bargain, real value signing. But remember, as I said, you've got the spectre of two, not just Real Madrid, two European super clubs, because Bayern Munich, as always, was a young German player. Uh, who's, who's very good, will come into the equation and we know that they're going to be massively restructuring in the same way that Real Madrid will be doing this summer. So Liverpool got a fight in their hands, but I think Klopp is, a, is, an, is a definitely uh, a factor in this uh, in terms of the, the charm offensive. And also I'm told that Werner himself is, is more keen to move out of Germany than he is to stay and go to Bayern because unfortunately there has been a long um, history of players who go to Bayern at his age and, and don't quite make it and end up, you know, tails between their legs leaving um, the Allianz Arena um, only one or two years later. So so big news then, as I said, for Liverpool fans, that this is something which is definitely, you know, a live wire and, and um, we will be monitoring it and obviously bringing you the latest in the next few podcasts. Certainly a position that Liverpool um, would need to add to um, in terms of rounding out their squad. Um, you know, the, 
the forward line is is incredibly potent and important to the way uh, they play. And it is actually quite remarkable um, how many games um, and how many games at, at such high tempo they've managed to squeeze out of Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino and Mo Salah this season. You know, usually a club um, which plays in the way they do um, at this level of the game, you know, going all you know, to the wire in the Premier League and uh, looking like they're going to make the semi-finals of the Champions League. They find it very hard to keep a forward line like that fit and playing all season and playing with the intensity they, they do. But Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp managed to find some kind of secret um, to achieving that. Um, in contrast to where um, Klopp was a couple of years ago um, when he first came to English football and uh, really struggling in particular with the with the winter, the lack of a winter break and and uh, physical performances and, and results in the field tailing off markedly in, in January um, in his first two seasons there. And we, we just haven't seen that at all. I think rotation is an element of that. Um, but uh, uh, you can say that uh, Manny and you can see Manny, Firmino and, and Salah have not been rotated. They're... they're, they're, um, they're um, outputs have been incredibly high so it would make sense to go for a player like this and it's very much in, in fitting with the way the kind of surgical fashion with, with which um, Liverpool have recruited in, in recent years which is specifically identifying targets that they feel are exceptionally well fitted to the way they play um, to the kind of running demands and the um, the, the ability to cover the ground at a pace that, that uh, is required in Klopp's system, um, identifying those players and, and, and getting the deals in place and being prepared to put down big money to do them. You know, we've seen them sign Navi Keita, for example, a year in advance um, because they decided that was the, the correct midfielder to uh, improve their system. Um, it's still to be proven fully that Keita is going to be has been the correct signing. Um, he's come more to the fore towards the end of this season, but um, they're they're very uh, definite in their targets, and they don't take the kind of scattergun approach that clubs like uh, Manchester United do, and have done, and uh, and to their great cost. And it's one of the key reasons, if not the key reason, why Manchester United haven't won a title since Sir Alex Ferguson left, is that they've. Uh, spent unprecedented amounts of money from the club's perspective um, but most of the time not spent them very well and not really had a consistent strategy about spending um, and uh, you know the other player we're going to talk about here Nicola Pepe is a good example of that um, Pepe has been recommended to Manchester United as a signing um, he plays predominantly off the right wing which has been a problem area uh, for Manchester United for years. They don't have uh, a natural fit in, in that area of the team. Um, he is quick, exceptionally quick, very calm in front of goal. Um, if you watch the weekend's highlights from League One, I would recommend watching the, the Lille-Paris Saint-Germain game um, when Pepe scores a key goal in that match, taking the ball from the halfway line. Uh, accelerating between two centre-backs and, and uh, very calmly uh, scoring. Um, and then what was a 5-1 victory for Lyon, it was a key goal in, in that, that game. And that's very typical of his performances this season and why um, the Lyon president 
has made it clear that he will be sold at the end of this campaign because he knows that uh, there are going to be major suitors, big offers from around Europe for the player. And uh, Leo's strategy is to develop guys of his talent and then sell them to bigger clubs and then reinvest the money in finding more players of, of similar talent. Um, you mentioned Timo Werner's stats. Pepe, as I say, playing off the right wing, has actually outscored Werner this season. He's got 18 goals in 31 league games, um, scoring a, a goal every 154 minutes in the, in the French Championship. And he's also got 11 assists on top of that. Um, I think still he'd be a very good fit for Manchester United. Um, he, particularly the way Solskjaer has his team playing, which is the emphasis is, has become increasingly on counter-attacking football and on quick breaks. And, uh, and Pep, Pepe has that speed over the ground um, where, you know, one pass from Paul Pogba, if he's still there next season, can release him uh, and get him in a goal and, and, and a cam finisher on, on top of that. I don't know whether Manchester United will be able to get him now. I think, um, I think there's serious competition from Bayern Munich. Uh, who have a long-standing interest in him, uh, and I think there's a there's there's a sense that uh, Paris Saint-Germain might go for the player themselves. Um, and if Paris Saint-Germain do come in, then you you have that option for um, for Pepe of of going to a club where he knows he's going to win the French title, who are properly focused on winning the Champions League, staying in his home country, uh, developing further there, and if you you know give give a player an option between that and moving to Manchester United where we'll, we'll wait and see if they're even in the Champions League and where it, um, it seems unlikely that they'll have a realistic chance for a, a, a league title challenge next season that should be an easy choice for him. Yep. Pepe is, is not the kind of player who <clears throat> is under the radar in any way. He's been starring for Lille um, for a while and, and just this season. Um, he has been watched um, for the club in person by Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham and Everton. So there's a, there is a strong interest from the Premier League in the player. I think Duncan's correct about Bayern Munich um, in the sense that uh, obviously Ribéry and Robin um, look to be leaving uh, Bayern this summer. They will spend a lot of money. Pep is exactly the kind of player um, who Bayern traditionally <clears throat> would look to acquire and then allow to thrive um, with them. I think Manchester United are kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit um, by focusing on a very overpriced bid for Jadon Sancho at Borussia Dortmund, um, seemingly on the back of his form for England as well, obviously, as Dortmund. But the fact that he's English makes him A, more expensive and B, apparently much more attractive. Um, there is an issue with um, Pepe being Ivorian and, and, and playing for Ivory Coast uh, because of the EU regulations, um, IE regulations for Premier League, about uh, restricting the amount of non-EU players you can have in your 25-man squad. But um, with regard to Manchester United, I would have thought you know, getting rid of one non-EU player wouldn't have been difficult. I, Alexis Sanchez immediately comes to mind. Um, so <clears throat> I think that United will probably lose out on this one. And I think any late bids from Arsenal or Tottenham will probably fail. Um, there's still no reason why um, either Real Madrid or Barcelona might not get involved in this uh, particular bidding war, um, especially if you know, especially in the case of Madrid, if they were to lose both wide players um, and then need to recruit 
either one who is ready to start or indeed an understudy. So it's it's Pepe is I think of great interest to a lot of clubs, but I my sort of gut feeling is that he'll end up in Germany with Bayern Munich. You know, it's fascinating with Manchester United now. We saw Solskjaer um, before the games at the weekend uh, talking about the problems he has with his squad, um, talking about the necessity of rebuilding, how he had to be ruthless, um, how it was going to be survival of the fittest and survival of the best. I mean, just a huge contrast to where Solskjaer was when he came into the club and he was talking about how it was easy to play good football if you had a, had good players and he had unbelievably good players. You know, the reality of the situation uh, is being expressed by the manager now. Um, but, you know, Pepe is a great example of, of how Manchester United's recruitment has gone wrong. The, the, the criticism of the previous manager was that he only wanted to sign um, experienced players um, close to uh, in, in their 30s or just before their 30s, and that was, that was a bad strategy for the club. And, and you know, this is being briefed internally um, to the press as excuses for not acting in the transfer market. Nicola Pepe is one of the players that Mourinho recommended to the club as a signing. Um, he's 23 years old. He's, you know, he, he should tick all the boxes in terms of um, going for younger players who you can retain at the club for a long time, who can immediately go in, into the team and, and, uh, and, and make a difference. Um, and could have been signed at that time for uh, considerably less than what he's going to end up going for this summer. Edder Militown is another example, again recommended um, by Mourinho, as a signing at centre-back because the club wanted to sign younger players. They don't uh, do something about it at the time and he ends up joining uh, Real Madrid this summer to be the starting starting centre-back for Real Madrid um, because Madrid moved quicker and uh, activated what, if he achieves what um, scouts think he will achieve in the game, will turn out to be an extremely cheap recruitment price of 50 million euros. So, you know, there's this kind of myth about um, what the previous manager wanted in the market, which doesn't fit with some of the things he was recommending to the club, which the club didn't action. And players who are now moving to top Champions League clubs, clubs that, who are higher in the pecking order um, in European football at present in terms of their performances on the pitch, just you know, a, a, a window or two windows later. Um, and United have to solve this problem because it doesn't, they can change their manager as much as they like until they change the makeup of their squad um, to get higher quality players in there and not retain individuals who aren't good enough to hold down a first team place, place at Manchester United for years and give them long extended contracts. They're never going to be back in, even in the challenge for the Premier League title. It, this, you know, the, we've, we've seen... Um, a demise since Sir Alex Ferguson resigned as manager, that demise might not have got yet as bad as it could get if they don't make a fundamental change to the way they operate. Okay, we're going to move on now to discuss the incredibly exciting title race in the Premier League that is absolutely going down to the wire. City, of course, have five games left to go and Liverpool four. With City sitting two points behind with that game in hand. 
One of the big narratives, most interesting topics of discussion is the return to form of Mo Salah and Kevin De Bruyne. Ian, how important is it for each of the clubs that their best players, in this case De Bruyne and Salah, are hitting form right now at what is such a crucial time in this title race? I don't think we can um, underestimate <clears throat> just how important it is, Johnny. Um, you think about last season and Salah and De Bruyne were the ones... Um, who effectively, you know, lit up the entire season for both clubs, uh, both with goals, assists, and generally being the, the main man, if you like, um, for their team. And of course, what's happened this season, De Bruyne's been injured for the majority of it. Salah's had his own injury problems. <clears throat> he seems to have suffered from fatigue, both mentally and physically. And um, so neither has, has been performing to the same level uh, by any uh, standard compared to last season and then you see Salah score that wonderful goal uh, against Chelsea but not only that, his, his play <clears throat> had really gone back to the brilliance uh, that we saw uh, in, in last season's campaign, running directly at defenders, terrifying them um, with his uh, lower body strength and balance can't get near him conceding free kicks against him uh, and obviously said that the, the assistant scoring as well are back. Um, in terms of De Bruyne, I think anyone who loves football, just look at the pass to Raheem Sterling um, for City's opening goal. It was just, you know, it was perfect in every way, shape and form. The vision, the weight, the direction. Sterling, who is lightning quick, doesn't have to break straight and then finishes brilliantly, having missed a fairly simple chance earlier in the match um, to put them ahead at Palace. Now, Interestingly as well, these were two games which in the preview of uh, this weekend just gone, um, a lot was being made of bogey teams. Palace obviously had beaten City at, at the Etihad <clears throat> this season and also obviously the 2014 infamous Stephen Gerrard slip uh, when Demba Ba scored and, uh, and Liverpool's title hopes effectively diminished in that particular match. And yet both sides, I think, pretty much normalised all of that sort of hype, negativity, hyperbole, whatever you want to call it, by going out and doing their job in a very professional manner, a very straightforward way. True, Chelsea had a spell um, just before um, Liverpool scored their second goal, where they, or sorry, just after where they could have been 2-2. But it, I, I felt that Liverpool looked pretty much in control of the game. I think that City were very much in control of, of, of their game early in the afternoon. And I think the influence of those guys, because as a player and as a coach, you you do feel that you're disadvantaged when your best player is not playing well or indeed not playing. But when they come back with this at this critical moment, and remember, we're not just talking Premier League, we're talking Champions League as well. And for City, the FA Cup and quadruple. So when those players come back and they play in that way as if nothing had changed since this time last season, or even earlier this time last season, it's a massive boost to both coach and teammates that they can now rely upon, you know, as I said, someone who they, is regarded as one of their best players to, to perform um, and to deliver as well. Uh, and I think that's going to be a major influence in the run-in, and I said both Champions League and Premier League. Um, both coaches have said after the games on Sunday, uh, we cannot afford to drop points or we won't win the title. Yeah, I think that within them privately, they'd concede that they probably will drop points somewhere along the line. So it's fascinating 
both psychological and football contest now that we have. Um, and you know, we're lucky that we've we are we've got you know prime seats to see how it unfolds because it is going to be a real roller coaster. I think from from now until the end of the season. Yeah, I think it, it's the the form of those two players is important. I think Manchester City um, having the best player of last season. I mean, De Bruyne wasn't just the best player for them; he was the player of, of the season uh, in a realistic analysis. Um, the guy who, who made uh, the highest quality interventions and um, created goal after goal for Manchester City in that campaign. Now coming back uh, with appetite um, for these last games, and as Ian says, you know, able to hit that quality of pass to um, open up a game, uh, which could have been very difficult for them at Crystal Palace. I think it's a huge advantage to them the, the depth of squad they have and and that scenario where in almost every position they have two extremely high quality players um liverpool don't have that um they there's a few positions where they've got double choices but not many um and i i think that that's where manchester city have the advantage at, at, at present um interesting to see what happens in the, the second leg of the champions league this week because you would expect liverpool will go through which will give them a semi-final to add into their list of fixtures. But I think there's a reasonable chance City go out um, to Tottenham, uh, given um, Pep Guardiola's fragility in, in these big knockout games, his ability to beat himself, uh, as we discussed last week. And if that does happen, that, that makes, I think, a, a difference to the dynamic because Liverpool will then have a semi-final uh, to play either side of what looks the hardest of the remaining fixtures, Newcastle United, whereas um, Manchester City will go from the team who had more games to play than the opposition and, and more physical demands on them to the team who would have less games and will be able to focus uh, all the resources on the, the Leicester home match on the 4th um, and the Burnley um, away match um, on the, the 28th of April. So um, could could uh, could have an influence on on the title. What happens in the Champions League this week, um, and I think more likely to to be beneficial to City in terms of uh, physical demands than it is to Liverpool. Okay, it's time now for the heroes and villains round, where we look back at the weekend's action. Duncan, you're going to start us off with your hero. Uh, I think the hero of the weekend is someone who has been a hero on many occasions uh, during his Premier League career. Um, someone who came up with a save in a match uh, which may end up um, keeping Manchester United in the, the Champions League next season. Um, I think anyone who watched the West Ham United uh, yeah, performance at Old Trafford on uh, Saturday would uh, would be kind of checking that the ground they were playing at was actually Old Trafford because we watched again um, a team who traditionally uh, would have sat back um, and tried to scrape a result, uh, go after um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side, um, have by far the better of the attacking play, score um, early on um, and, have, and see the, the linesman given incorrect offside, um, come back into the match and, um, and then put 
Michael Antonio on at the end, and uh, Antonio produced a, a superb close-range header, which um, seemed destined for the back of the net. But amazingly, De Gea, um, as he's done so often before, managed to get his body across and, and touch it away from goal. Um, and uh, United went up the other end and um, got their second penalty of the game following another um, poor offside decision and won the match. And uh, in those little details, in those little moments of brilliance from one player, you can have the difference um, between winning titles and not winning titles, or in Manchester United's case, between getting in the top four and not getting in the top four. And I think it makes it all the more bizarre that that Manchester United are um, refusing to meet De Gea's wage demands um, and uh, I've put the, the future of um, of the best player at the club, um, of a player who uh, who the manager um, credited for that victory after post-match um, in, in doubt because um, they've angered him and are, are not prepared to pay him what he feels he's worth. Ian, what about your villain? Okay, I'm going to... Um... <clears throat> go a little bit kind of uh, retro old school here in terms of my frame of reference for those of you of a certain age who grew up when there was only four terrestrial channels uh, to choose from may well remember uh, repeats of an American sitcom called Sergeant Bilko and uh, where uh, a American army sergeant basically um, was set up every week in every episode to make the wrong decision um, thinking he was making the right one and he I may more him. likely remember the Steve Martin film that was released in the. Oh, maybe, maybe. Indeed, but listen, uh, YouTube and Google are wonderful <laughs> things for our younger listeners on this one. But just you guys, if, those of you who've never heard of Sergeant Bilko, just go a little and ask yourself who does he remind you of? The Chelsea manager, Mirko Sari. Every week, week in, week out, he makes the wrong decision, <laughs> thinking he's making the right one, and uh, either flukes a result or, or, or doesn't get anywhere near it. And he deprives everyone of a bit of a spectacle. Um, at Anfield on Sunday by playing Hazard out of position, by playing Jorginho again because he always has to play <clears throat> and by being as dogmatic as he always is and uh, and not no, and the knowledge that an Anfield crowd was going there absolutely on their nerves yeah. thinking, what's going to happen? Is it going to be a repeat of 2014? Etc, etc. Uh, all he had to do was go out and play offensively and play a high press on Liverpool and, and make them sweat. And if they got the first goal Anfield crowd turns and probably you've got less of a title race. Now, I'm not saying we don't want less of a title race, but I'm sure that Chelsea fans and certainly the uh, owners of the club would like to make Champions League. So um, for me, Sarri, uh, uh, you know, we mentioned already in this podcast, already trying to angle his way out of Chelsea with a payoff, despite the fact he'd be going straight in a job at Roma. Um, and his mind clearly is, is not is not there. And... Um, that was always the case with Sergeant Bilko also, which made it much more funny. So uh, villain is Mercio um, Sarri, but hero Sergeant Bilko. Sarri ball seems like a long, long time ago, doesn't Jeez. it? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was. People were praising, wasn't it? We were talking earlier in this podcast about that uh, incredible unbeaten run that they had at the start of the season. All of a sudden, Sarri ball was going to be the new thing, etc., etc. But, you know, with all fads and fashions, uh, the season changes. And so does the, the mood of the public. Sorry, bollocks, remember? It's Sorry, bollocks. Copyright, copyright, Duncan Castles. Yes, it's safe to say the transfer window were sceptical. Don't go back and listen, you know, there's no need. But we can assure you. Do go back and listen. <laughs> 
That's one of the things you do, should do. Yeah, exactly. Do go and back, go and, back listen. and listen and, and see give what, us a, and give us a five star rating on iTunes and give something back because it helps us to uh, our wonderfully um, educated and intelligent listeners to share the Transfer Window podcast with everyone out there who also wants to be listening as well. So instead, just I'm just doing Johnny's job for him, people. Like, yeah, you, know, yeah. you, know, you, know how, you know how I feel about that. Listen, it's, it's fully protectionism on my part because I was drinking the Sari Kool-Aid and disagreeing with you both. <laughs> so so let's not pretend there was anything else going on here than, than my protectionism. That, but, and remember, that's cool with a K, people. <laughs> okay, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. We are going to be back on Wednesday for your questions answered. Um, that will be coming to you at midnight. Um, to continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. You can contact us uh, individually if you wish at Johnny R. McFarlane, at Garbo SG, and at Duncan Castles. Or, of course, you can come at us through the at Transfer Window podcast account. If you liked uh, what we're doing here, and uh, we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes, as Ian just said, giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening.